Good morning. Italy? All the Italy people, raise your hand. Where in Italy are you from? Where? Are you all from the same city? Different cities. Okay. I, I need to ask the whole church a favor. I need you to keep an eye on my wife because she loves Italy. And she's going to try to blend in with all of the Italian folks. Um, hey, so my name is uh, David Swanson. I'm the pastor of Community Life, and uh, it's a privilege to get to be preaching here this morning. We're going to continue on our series, Church Without Walls, that we've been in uh, for a, a little while now. And uh, it's funny how this works, but today we're going to cover an entire chapter. So I like to call this the Pastor David, Pastor Michael method of preaching through Acts. <laughs> you, you know what the Pastor Peter method is. Um, so we're going we're gonna to look at the entire chapter, uh, chapter 12 today. So if you have a Bible, just open it up. Chapter 12 of Acts, verses 1 through 25. And, uh, and the story this morning is, uh, is pretty interesting. It's, um, it's got all the marks of a really, really good story, this chapter does. Uh, we have tragedy, we have drama, and, and we actually have a fair bit of humor as well in this story, believe it or not. Commentators will say that people in the first, second century, when they were hearing chapter 12, the story in chapter 12 for the first time, probably would have laughed out loud at some points in the story. There's some, some humorous things that happen. So it's a, it's a fascinating story, but wrapped up in this story, in chapter 12, is a rather profound question. Uh, and I think Luke, uh, through this story, through the characters that we encounter in this story, through the drama, through the humor, I think Luke is asking a pretty profound question, one that most of us have asked are asking or will ask, and it's this. Who is in control? I think this is the fundamental question that Luke is asking as he tells this story. Who is in control? Have you asked this question? Have you ever asked, really? I mean, have you ever asked this question? Here's, here's when we ask this question. We ask this question, when a white supremacist walks into the Holocaust Museum and starts shooting. We ask this question when a jet crashes in the middle of the ocean and hundreds of people die. We ask this question when a couple has one miscarriage and then another miscarriage and then another. Or a couple tries for years to get pregnant and just can't. There's all these different times when we find ourselves asking this who is in control question. It's not a rational question. It's not a, a theological question necessarily when we think down and just intellectually reason our way through life. Who is in control is a question that blindsides us. Who is in control is a question that just bubbles up from the depths of our experience. It's an emotional question. It's a question that most of us would rather not ask because we ask this question when life gets out of control. Would you agree? And there are different ways of answering this question. We could probably think of a lot of different ways of answering this question. But let me just say, in broad categories, maybe there are two ways that we tend to answer who is in control. The first is nobody. Who is in control? Ultimately, nobody's in control. 
The world is governed by a set of principles, natural laws. There's random elements to it. Ultimately, nobody is in control. Nothing is in control. A a variation of this would be to say, well, maybe there's some sort of deity, some sort of God, some kind of transcendent being, whatever you want to call it. But this deity is not interested in us. This deity maybe had something to do with creating the world, but is now nowhere to be found. When we answer the question this way, when we answer the who is in control question this way, we're really saying this on a day-to-day basis. It is the powerful who have the control. If we say ultimately in the universe there's no one, there's no thing, nothing in control, on a day-to-day basis we have to say then it's, it's the ones who have the power who have control. Would you agree? Those with the might, those with the power, those with the wealth ultimately are in control. There's a second way that we can answer this question, though. Some of us would say, no, there is a God who ultimately is in control. There is a God who is good. There is a God who has exhibited goodness to his creation, to people. There is a God who has revealed God's self to us, who we can know. And it is this God who is in control. Who is in control? God is in control. And if we answer the question this way, there's obviously a ton of implications for our day-to-day life. Complicated implications, though. And it's my sense that this is the question that Luke is wrestling with as he tells this story. And so let's read this story in chapter 12, Acts chapter 12. It's a little bit long. Thank you, Pastor Peter. But it's interesting. It's a good story. Let's, let, let me read this to you. Follow along. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. Passover is seven days long, so Peter's been in prison for about seven days. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Yeah, that's one of the funny parts, just so you know. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. 
When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and explained, Peter is at the door. This is good. You guys are getting the humor. This is awesome. This is going to be an easier sermon to preach than I thought. You're out of your mind, they told her when she kept insisting that it was so. They said it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and he left for another place. This is James, the brother of Jesus, who had become one of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards in order that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not a mere mortal. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down. He was eaten by worms and died. That's kind of black humor. (laughs) But the word of God continued to increase and spread. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Um, so let's, let's start by talking about the two different ways that we can answer this who is in control question. Um, the passage begins with Herod. Uh, Herod is uh, a name that we are familiar with if we've read Luke's first book, the Gospel of Luke. Because we meet this Herod's great-great-great-grandfather in the Gospel of Luke. Herod the Great is in power when Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Let me say a couple of things about Herod the Great. Herod the Great was appointed king of the Jews by Rome. Rome occupied Palestine during this time. And so they appointed Herod because they knew that they would be loyal. He would be loyal to the Romans. Uh, Herod was, his Jewish credentials were questionable, let's just put it that way. And so the Jews didn't want to recognize him as their king. Herod comes to Jerusalem with Roman soldiers in order to make himself king by force. And he's a brutal, brutal man. One one example, there's a, a contingency of Jewish rebels who are opposing this new king. And they're beaten back by Herod and by his soldiers. So they flee into the cliffs and hide in some caves on the side of these cliffs. Herod pursues them. He has his soldiers create scaffolding that can be lowered over the top of the cliff to the mouth of these caves. He then builds fires at the entrance of these caves that are at the edge of these cliffs. And as the smoke fills the caves, the men and women and children in these caves have to rush towards the mouth of the cave in order to not be suffocated. And when they do, when they reach the edge of the cave, Herod has the soldiers who are still standing on the scaffolding reach into the cave with poles and pull the men, women, and children to their deaths off the edge of the cliff. 
And there's story after story after story of the brutality of King Herod. This is a man who killed many, many members of his own family, wives, sons, daughters, because he thought they were plotting against him, torturing some of his own family members. Why? In order to maintain his grip on power. In order to be in control. And this was a time in Jewish history when people were asking the who is in control question because the people were waiting for their true ruler, for their true king to come and rescue them, liberate them from the Romans. And here is Herod. Who is in control? Herod was also a great builder. He rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem, over 15 stories tall. There's a story in the Gospel of Matthew where the the disciples point to the temple uh, and say, Jesus, look at this amazing building. Isn't it spectacular? Because it was huge. The pillars coated in gold, marble everywhere. It was amazing. He also built the Antonia Fortress, huge, massive fortress to guard the city of Jerusalem. This is probably where Jesus was tried before he was crucified. The Antonia Fortress is probably where Peter was being held in our story. Herod the Great also builds this mountain fortress, which he calls the Herodian. He was not humble. He may have been compensating for who knows the Herodian is this, it's still there to this day. This fortress on top of this mountain in the middle of the desert had pools, gardens, baths. I mean, it was the lap of luxury. And here's the interesting thing. The Herodian overlooked Bethlehem. So from the town of Bethlehem, you could look, you can to this day look and see this fortress. Where was Jesus born? Where was Jesus born? Whew. <laughs> I have to take the sermon in a whole other direction. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. So, so can you picture this? Can you picture this? Mary and Joseph, who, who've been told, your son will be the Messiah, the true king of the Jews, the hope for rescue, for liberation. And where is he born? In Bethlehem, in a manger in a town that's being overlooked by the Herodian. Do you see the symbolism? So so Jesus is born under the rule of King Herod. Jesus and his family have to flee. They become refugees because King Herod learns that the king of the Jews has been born, and so he seeks to destroy all the boys that would have been Jesus' age. We meet Herod's son at Jesus' arrest, who kind of helps proceed over his trial. We meet Herod's, the great's grandson in our story today, who kills the first apostle, James, imprisons Peter. We meet Herod's great, great, great grandson towards the end of Acts, who questions the apostle Paul when he's arrested, when he's being brought to Rome for his trial. So, so all along the story of Jesus and the early church, this name Herod just keeps popping up. Do you see this? Herod, Herod, Herod. He's just not going away. Here is the work of God. Here is this powerful, oppressive ruler. The birth of the Son of God, the death of the Son of God, the resurrection of the early church. Herod, 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 Herod. Who is in control? Who is in control? And you couldn't blame people for saying, well, it must be Herod. Ultimately, there must not be anybody in control because it seems like it's the powerful, the oppressive who have the control. 
and, and if we can set aside sort of our hyper-spirituality for a second, many of us could, could say that this is maybe our experience. I know the Christian thing is to say, no, God is in control. We'll get to that. But I think if we're honest, many of us could say that, that this is our experience. That, that when, we, when, we, when we're really honest with ourselves, our experience in life says that Herod is in control. I was talking with one of our Chicago public school teachers this week. She said she wept during graduation this week, knowing that some of her students weren't going to graduate. Students that she loved and cared for. And our school teachers in Chicago can look out to the suburbs and say, why is it so different for people who have money, for people who have power? Those of you who are, who are struggling for affordable housing in Logan Square, is it not your experience that Herod often seems like he's in control? The powerful, the wealthy. Um, we, we, we just simply live in a, in a world, in a culture that is obsessed with the powerful. Um... So, People Magazine. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, those of you who like our subscribers. You know who you are. So, it's, it's uh, Brad and Angelina this week. Um, this, is a, this is a crazy magazine. Uh, we got Denzel. He's, he's in here. Rihanna. Jack Nicholson. Why is it? Why is it that I cannot go grocery shopping without knowing the intimate details of these people's lives? Seriously, have you tried this? Have you tried to go to Jewel and like not learn some really juicy tidbit of gossip about somebody? <laughs> it's impossible. Why? Why? We're obsessed with the power. We live in a culture that says ultimately no one is in control, so it's the powerful who have control. And we live in a culture where celebrity equals power, yes? So it's our politicians, it's our celebrities, it's our athletes who have power, who have control. Just try this experiment sometime. When you're, when you're having a meal with somebody, when you're a room, in a room with friends, and someone tells, starts to tell a story of a famous person that they just had an encounter with, you wouldn't believe who I just bumped into. You know what I mean? Just watch everybody around the room, right? Because I guarantee this is what happened. This is what's happening. Everybody around the room is like going, okay, what story can I tell? <laughs> right? Am I right? You can just see like the mental filing. How can I top this story? <laughs> I'll see your Rihanna and raise you, right? I mean, that's what we're doing. My wife and I have this ongoing joke because Maggie will say, I've never met a famous person. And she's not like obsessed with it, but she's like, what, what's it like to meet a famous person? And I don't really, I don't care. You can tell I don't really care. So this one time I'm in the Los Angeles airport. This is like eight years ago. And um, 
I'm waiting for my flight. And so I go to the magazine rack and I reach up for uh, the, the copy of Rolling Stone. And this guy next to me is reaching up for it uh, as well. And it's the, um, uh, the guy who played James Bond. Um, Pierce, no, Pierce, Bro- uh, what? Brosnan. Pierce Brosnan. Um, <laughs> but I recognized him at least. I didn't know his name, but I at least recognized him from the movie. And I'm like, so I, this, I didn't, this is before, like, I even had a cell phone. So, like, I run, you know, to the payphone, like, call my wife. <laughs> Guess who I just saw? I don't know his name, but he's the James Bond guy, you know? And she's like, so unfair. Um, but look, check it out. When was the last time, when was the last time that you ran to a payphone? When you picked up your cell phone? <laughs> okay. Sent a telegraph. No. When was the last time you picked up your cell phone, called your friends and said, guess who I just talked with? The woman who bags my groceries. Guess, who I, guess whose autograph I just got? That guy who stands at the interstate off-ramp with the out-of-work sign. He gave me an autograph. Why, why don't we tell those kinds of stories? We live in a culture that says ultimately no one's in control. So it's the powerful. It's the powerful who have the control. So this is how it works. This is how it works. What's the most important thing? Power. What do we strive after? Power. Or we try to get associated with those who have power. What happens when we lose power? What happens to those who don't have any power? Fear. In our culture, in our world, we expect those who don't have power to have fear. And this is what happens. This is what happens when the church believes that Herod is in control. Have you seen this? Have you seen it when the church believes that Herod is in control? That Christians begin striving after power, after political power? Have you seen what happens when when, when a, a real famous celebrity athlete converts, meets Jesus? You see what happens? Do you know what the church does? And that person is our best friend all of a sudden. We're going to invite him to our conference, to our seminar, to our church. Going to tell stories about this person. Why? Because we want to be associated with the powerful. What happens when the church thinks that it's losing power? We get afraid. So, in my kind of white evangelical world, during this last presidential election, guess how many really fearful emails I got? I mean, literally. We should be afraid if dot, 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 dot. Why? Because we're acting as if Herod is in control. If we lose this power, if we lose our political power, we're in trouble. And, and, and if we read our story, if we read through the first few verses, it makes sense. It seems as if Herod really is in control. James is the first apostle to be killed. He won't be the last James, the brother of John, the first apostle to be killed. Peter, the rock, inner circle with Jesus, is in prison. 
It seems as if Herod really is in control. The persecution of the apostles really only begins after the gospel is accepted by the Gentiles. Did you see this? We've been talking over the past few weeks about how the church is wrestling with the fact that the gospel, the good news, the the story of what Jesus has accomplished is not just for the Jews, but for everybody. And it's when the Gentiles begin accepting this message, it's when the church begins reflecting the entire world that this persecution begins when the leaders of the church are getting killed. And so you have to imagine that this early church was asking the same question. Who is in control right now? God, we thought we understood your mission. We thought you were telling us that this was a message for everybody. But now James is dead. Now Peter is in prison. God, who is in control? And we begin, to get, we begin to get a sense. Can we put verse 5 up? Uh, June, June, can we put verse 5 up there? We begin to get a sense of how the church begins to answer this question. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. James is dead. Peter's in prison. Church is being scattered. Keyword, but. Everything around them says Herod is in control. Everything around them says Herod is going to win. Everything around them says that ultimately it's the powerful who have the final say. But the church was earnestly praying. This is our first sense that the church is acting as if Herod isn't in control. Everything around them may say, ultimately, it's Herod. Ultimately, it's the powerful who have control. This is our first sense in the story where the church says, nope, nope. There's something else. There's something bigger. Verse 6. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, in other words, the night before he was supposed to die, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Yeah, (laughs) Nate's laughing. Think about it. You're on death row. You're going to die the next day? Are you asleep? I mean, seriously. This is not a throwaway detail. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was asleep. He's chained. He's in prison. He's sleeping like a baby. This is our second hint that the church is acting as if Herod doesn't get the final say. James is dead. Peter's in prison. The church has been scattered. But the church was earnestly praying. But Peter was sleeping like a baby. Do you see this? Do you see what's happening? They're living in such a way as to point to something else. Herod doesn't get the final say. Later on in Acts, we're going to see this in chapter 16. The apostle Paul and Silas are put in prison. Their response? They don't sleep. They sing. It makes just as much sense as going to sleep. 
they sang. Uh, there's a, an author um, named Brian Blunt who wrote a book called Then the Whisper Put on Flesh, New Testament Ethics in an African-American Context. And he talks about, during the time of slavery, how slave masters would bring all of the men, women, and children together who they owned, who they possessed, at the end of the uh, corn harvest to shuck corn. And, and it was sort of a day-long thing, and they got everybody together so that they could uh, uh, just get it done, right? But what happened during these day-long projects was that these men, women, and children began to sing. Uh, they began to tell jokes. Uh, they began to tell jokes where the butt of the joke, can you guess? Slave master. Slave masters didn't get it, though. They were able to show love and compassion for one another during these days that they, they weren't able to most of the time. So, so, so let me put up this, this quote right here from, from Blunt. Now, this is what he says. For a precious moment in time, they were transported. Still in the world, they were no longer of the world, no longer shackled by it, no longer dehumanized because of it. For a moment, who they were was counter to everything the slave owner knew them to be. You see what he's saying? Is there another slide? Let's go back to the next. Yeah. The corn shucking as a moment of seizing a sacred domain is a glimpse of the future in the midst of the present. You see that? Indeed, already in the resistance itself, the new thing in the common, coded, connected exhilaration and concern for one another over against the common evil, the future had dawned. You see what Blunt is saying here? In this moment, in this moment, these men and women were acting as if the new reality was already there. Blunt goes further and says, in fact, in that moment, the new reality, freedom, liberation had come. This is Paul and Silas singing in prison. This is Peter asleep in prison. This is the church earnestly gathering together to pray, despite the fact that it looks like Herod will win. Despite the fact that James is dead, that Stephen has been stoned, that the church has been scattered. So if Herod isn't in control, then what? Because it looks like he is, but the church is acting like he's not. So then what? Well, we expect um, something dramatic from Peter when he's rescued. Uh, Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared in the light, shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side of the head. Well, not the side of the head, but that's what I picture. And that's how he's sleeping hard. Strikes him on the side of the head. And then, okay, so then Peter says, oh, this is nice. I'm having a vision. This must be a metaphor for my liberation in Christ, my salvation. It's not after he's been freed, gone through three different gates, and then is standing out in the middle of the city at night all by himself where he's, oh, it was real. That actually happened. Um, and then, so, okay, so watch. So, so then he goes, he goes to the house where he knows everybody's going to be. Uh, Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. 
when she recognized Peter's voice, she was over, okay, so she runs. She thinks it's him at least, right? At least she thinks Peter's there. Everybody else, you're out of your mind, they told her. So this, picture this. Churches together. Lord Jesus, please rescue Peter. Please rescue Peter. Peter's been rescued. Be quiet. Lord Jesus, please rescue Peter. Please rescue Peter. I'm telling you, he's at the door. You're crazy, woman. Lord Jesus, please, would you just... This is what's happening, right? And we, I can get real critical really quickly of Peter and the early church. Why are they... I mean, good grief. They've been praying for this, right? We, I can get critical. Listen, listen. Saying that God is in control is not the same thing as saying we can control God. Saying that God is in control is not the same thing as saying we can control God. Because guess what? The church gathered and prayed for James too. James died. The church gathered and prayed for the church too and the church was scattered. The church was persecuted. Right? Saying God is in control is not the same thing as saying we can control God. And I think a lot of times, church, this is what we mean when we say, I believe God is in control. What we mean is, if I do certain things, say certain things, go to church a certain amount of times, pray a certain way, read my Bible, don't do these things, then God's going to do what I want God to do for me. Right? We mean something different when we say God is in control. We may mean, I think I can control God. And the early church wouldn't go there. So it's funny, but they get surprised. They were going to say God is in control whatever happened to Peter. They were going to say God is in control whatever happened to them, to their early church. God was still in control. So let's not get too, too critical because it may be that they had a better understanding of what it means for God to be in control than we do some of the times. A couple more things about this before we move on. Um, So we, uh, let me see, how how do I want to say this? To acknowledge God's control, I want to say this really carefully. To acknowledge God's control is to release our control. And this is why I want to say this carefully. Because some of us have heard this and we've equated it with this very passive acquiescence of just our circumstances. Right? So there's this kind of Christian-y phrase, Italian folks, I don't know if you have something like this, but we say, we just need to let go and let God. What, what does that mean? Because that to me sounds really just like, hey, whatever happens, happens. I'm just passive, just going to let it happen to me. When, when, we, when we say God is in control, we are releasing our control. But that is different than being passive. Let's put up the next quote from um, Professor Blunt. The slaves were envisioning the future in the hopes that a people emboldened by the portrait they saw in their minds would use their lives as brushes to help draw it in their history. 
Does it sound passive to you? They were using their faith through vision and song to inspire their readers and listeners to hope, to endure, and ultimately to, and ultimately to, is that passive? When we, when we say that God is in control, we are releasing our control. When we are releasing our control, we are stepping into active participation with God and his mission in the world. This is not a passive let go and let God, I'm just going to float along. No. We've said this over and over again in the church. You know this. God is taking his creation somewhere. God has a mission for his world. God is redeeming and restoring all things. And you and I, we are invited to participate with God in that. Saying God is in control means we release control of our lives, means that we step into active participation, means that ultimately we resist what Pastor Peter prayed earlier, the principalities and the powers of this world. This is what those slaves were doing. It wasn't passive. They were actively resisting, actively demonstrating the justice and love of God, actively embodying a future that was going to come. There's another pet peeve of mine. Um, so now you know, don't ever say let go and let God to me. Here's the other one I don't want you to ever say to me. And there's variations on this one, but go something like this. You need to stop trying to control your life because you're, you're just not very good at controlling your life. You need to let God control your life. You need to stop trying to manage your life. Let God be a manager of your life because God's a better manager. The insinuation being that if you let God be in control, your life's going to be a whole lot better. Things are going to go a whole lot better for you. God will have your life in control if you just give him control of your life. Really? I want to say that your life is going to go out of control. When we release our control, our lives are no longer in our control. Our lives are out of control. Have you had this experience where you're talking with a Christian, someone who's been a Christian, a follower of Jesus for a lot of years, and they're reflecting back on their lives. And they say something along the lines of, 10 years ago, I would have never imagined where God would have me today. Have you had that experience? 20 years ago, I would have never predicted that this is what God would have done in my life. It wasn't until I released control of my life. My life has never been the same. Have you heard this? Let me tell you this, 10 years ago, I would have sworn up and down, and I mean sworn up and down, that I would never, ever, 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 ever be a pastor. I'm, that is straight up. I would have been a garbage collector. I would sweep the streets. I would pull weeds, which I did for an entire summer before I would be a pastor. I have issues. I can tell you about them later. <laughs> ten years later. Ten years later. I can honestly tell you, I would never, ever, ever, ever have imagined that I'd be standing here speaking to you in Chicago. I'd never, 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 never. Can you, can you say that? Can you look back and say, that was a moment that was the moment that I released control. When I acknowledged God's control, my life's never been the same. It's been out of control since then. 
Uh, let's go to verse 21. So I appreciate that Luke doesn't just leave us hanging with, with Herod. Um, Herod goes down to uh, Caesarea. Um, th- there's a, a historian named Josephus who tells this exact same story. It's very accurate in, in detail. Josephus, Josephus gives a little bit more detail. He says that Herod's royal robe was actually made out of silver. And so Josephus paints this picture of Herod walking into this uh, massive group of people. And, and, and it's like uh, midday, so the sun shines on his robe. And it, I mean, literally, you couldn't look at the guy. It was too bright, blinding. I mean, this is the scene of power. This whole thing is set up to demonstrate to everybody who's in control. Verse 23. Immediately because Herod did not praise God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. (laughs) And that is all that Herod gets. No more detail. No more verses. Herod got struck down, eaten by worms, died. That's it. That's it. Makes no sense in a world where Herod is in control, right? What's Luke doing here? What's Luke doing here? By giving Herod one little line like that, rather humiliating line like that, what's he doing? He's telling all of us. He's reminding all of us. It seemed like Herod was in control. It seemed like Herod had the power. It seemed like maybe there was no one ultimately in control, but (laughs) he got eaten by worms. So there's, you know. And and when I was in college, uh, junior year of college, just came back, it was August 1997. And uh, just a couple days after being back in school, um, Princess Diana died. Does anybody remember that? Remember that? Huge deal, Right? huge, huge deal. Uh, and I didn't know a lot about this person, but I was just flabbergasted. Like, I mean, I knew she had done some, some good things, but it was wall-to-wall coverage. I don't know if you remember this, but you couldn't turn on your television. It felt like weeks, right, without learning about Princess Diana. Five days later, do you know who died five days later? Mother Teresa. Do you know that? Some of you did. Mother Teresa died five days later. So I'm, I go to the, to the student, um, like, coffee shop, grill area late one evening. I think it was like a day or two after Mother Teresa died. It was day, I think it was the day after she died. And I'm there mostly by myself and a uh, TV in the corner. And uh, it's like Princess Diana gets, like, full coverage, wall to wall. And, and, and Mother Teresa gets, like, a couple lines and a little ticker underneath. I'm like, no, this is odd. But in a world that says ultimately there is no one in control. Ultimately, within this vacuum, it's the ones with the power, with the celebrity that have the control. It makes perfect sense. Because Mother Teresa, what did she do? She gave up control. She released power. She poured out her life. And what we see here is the opposite of this. Herod, he died, he died, he died. And then that word again, but. In other words, but what's really important? Herod died, but what's really important? The word of God continued to increase and spread. 
Yeah, the most powerful person in that area of the world, the one who had killed James, imprisoned Peter. Yeah, yeah, he died. But you know what's really important? If ultimately a good God is in control, if ultimately a God who has made God's self known to us, if ultimately God has taken on flesh and lived among us, if ultimately this God has taken all of our humanity onto himself, all of our rebellion, all of our addiction, all of our sin, if ultimately this God has liberated us, rescued us, ransomed our lives, if ultimately this God goes to the cross to put all of that to death so that Peter could sleep, the church could pray, Paul and Silas could sing, the slaves could shut corn and demonstrate a new reality. If this is true, if this is true, if this is our reality, then what matters is that the word of God continued to increase and spread. The mission of God continued to move forward. The gospel of Jesus Christ continued to be embodied and proclaimed. That's what matters. Herod, he's dead. Here's what really matters. The kingdom of God continued to advance. This to me is really, 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 really good news. I don't care who you are. If, 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 if you are a person who is not a Christian, who doesn't even believe in God, I think this is awesome news. Because I'm guessing you are as aware, as aware of I am that our city is one, that, is one that is run by the powerful. Our city is one that seeks to, to keep people exactly where they are to keep the powerful powerful and the oppressed oppressed. That's been your experience, whether you believe in God or not, right? So maybe this is good news to you because maybe this gives you just the, the faintest glimmer of hope that maybe there's a different way to answer the who is in control question. Maybe there's a different answer than no one or the powerful. Maybe today you get a chance to begin looking for ways that people are embodying a different answer. People who are pouring out their lives, releasing control, releasing power. Teachers who continue to teach, continue to show up at the schools, continue to love children. People who continue to fight for affordable housing. Parents who continue to, to love and build and equip families who are not going to grow up to be obsessed with power and celebrity. Maybe today you, you get a chance to begin looking for these glimpses of a different way to answer this question. And church, Christians, maybe you and I need to repent because we've, we've answered this question wrong. Maybe not theologically, maybe not in our words, but in our actions. We've acted at times as if Herod is in control. Can we admit that? We've gotten infatuated with power. We've sought after power. We've gotten afraid when we feel like we don't have power. We've neglected those who don't have power so that we can seek our own. Can we admit that? Maybe the good news for us this morning is that there's, there's really no point to living that way. Because that is a false reality. Let me invite our, our worship team to come up as we close our time. Let me, let, me just, let me just put this out here. What's the response for you today? 
You're probably not going to be in prison tomorrow, I'm guessing. Singing or sleeping. But might there be an equivalent? Might there be, might there be something in your life that allows you to demonstrate to those around you that you genuinely have released control to the God who is in control? What might that be? Well, let's, just, let's just spend a minute or so in silence. Just close your eyes, bow your heads, and ask that question. God, what might it be for us to be a people who don't just say we believe you're in control, but who, who live this way? People who sing when we shouldn't sing, pray when we shouldn't pray, laugh at jokes and stories that demonstrate a reality where Jesus Christ is resurrected, where the Son of God rules and reigns. What are decisions that we could make, God? What are actions that we could take that would show this reality? Holy Spirit, bring things to mind. Holy Spirit of God, would you give us a big imagination? For we have been formed by a world that says it's the powerful that matter. We've been formed by a world that says those without power ought to be afraid. So Holy Spirit, give us a holy imagination to picture a difference, to picture an alternative, to picture a way of living that demonstrates the Son of God seated on the throne, in control, in power. Help us to see through those who seem to have power as those who are in just as much desperate need for you as we are. And God, we will be a people who will raise our hands over and over again and say, we release it once again. We release control of our lives, not because you're gonna make our lives better, but because you are already in control of this world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We thank our God for who he is. The fact that he is our great God who is in control. Um, I was reflecting to this morning, and I just want to say I'm thankful for gifted men and women in our church who share the God's word. David's, Sandra's, Michael's, and Michelle. Are you thankful for them? We're thankful for them. Thank you. Thank Thank God for a church. Thank God for our church that gives us with these men and women. As you leave today, church, be encouraged, be empowered, be challenged by the word that was spoken today. We serve a God who is in control. We serve a God who is in control. Let's be people of God that fulfill the mission of God in the places that he has called us to. Have a great Sunday. We're glad that you came today. We'll see you back here next Sunday. Have a great week. Take care.